This passage came to mind because in a number of different conversations on different subjects, the quotes out of this passage ended up showing it. You know, somebody quoted this passage in the course of the last week. So I sort of felt I better go at least look at it and see what it has to say. And I'm not repeating the conversations that the quotes came out of, because I, as I looked at the passage, there was a real nice truth that Jesus Christ conveys in it. But let's pray. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for time in your word. We're asking that you would be making us alert to what your son has pointed us to. We'd ask that we would submit ourselves to him even when we're confused. In your son's name we pray, amen. And when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you he whom is to come, who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Now, <clears throat> that's sort of a repeat of what Jesus says uh, when he announces his ministry. Um, when he quotes, uh, I believe it's the Isaiah 61 uh, 1 through 3, I have it here on the side. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Christ quotes the early part of that uh, uh, verse, that sentence, when he announces his ministry in the synagogue. And he says, today this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he walks into his ministry announcing that's what he's going to do. John's in prison a little bit later, looking back and saying, are you the one, he said to his disciples, take a look at what's happening. I have been doing this. I have been fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy of the one who is to come. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Now the problem with Jesus Christ, and 
The problem with Jesus Christ is that he really says some unthinkable things. Really. I mean, just when you think you've got them all worked out in your mind, he is this sort of renaissance moment, standing like this, you know, halo of kindness, standing around his head, little children running up to his knees, because in some of your pictures, that's exactly who Jesus is, which is fine, he did that. I don't know if he stood there like this. But then he says awful things. He says wonderful things in your mind, and then awful things in your mind. As a matter of fact, right after this section that we're not covering it this morning, but right after it, he starts talking about the cities that rejected his message and how the judgment is going to fall on them. Far worse, he says, than Sodom and Gomorrah because of their failure to believe in him. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Everybody likes Jesus to include Jesus on their team or in their lineup. The, the Muslims like to have Jesus in their lineup. He's one of the great prophets. But they conveniently do that because they have no idea of what he said. People don't know what he said. They just make Jesus what they want him to be in their mind. He is their own plastic Jesus. Not the one that lived. Now the, one, the people that were around Jesus, the actual Jesus who lived in history, they didn't get to make a historically adjusted Christ. They had to put up with what he actually said. And they took offense at him. The Lord keeps saying things you don't agree with. And it, you wonder what to do with yourself at points like that. But it's a blessing to you if you take no offense at that. Now what I want to talk about this morning is that concept. How to get the blessing, or where, what sort of elements are in that blessing, or in that task of getting a blessing, taking no offense at Jesus Christ. happy to tell people what Jesus Christ said, regardless of the subject. Do you ever find that it's difficult to speak clearly about some of the scriptures because you know people will take offense? As a matter of fact, they tell you it's wrong to let them take offense. You have to, you have to adjust your life, what you believe and say, because if they get offended, it is the worst crime against humanity. They have been offended. Christ is saying, you know, work it out. Not taking offense at Christ is a blessed state to be in. As they went away, these are the disciples of John. They said, are you the one? He said, yes, go tell your master. They go away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? Why then did you go out? To see a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who wear soft raiment are in king's houses. Why then did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. 
Now, with John, <coughs> this is John the Baptist he's talking about here. We are offended when our experience with the Word of God or with Christ or with his, uh, the prophets and apostles says things that we didn't realize he was going to say, uh, are highly charged in regard to what is uh, current and popular thought. And so generally we stay clear of the Bible and let our churches, our churches soften the message of Jesus in accord with the most current thoughts of man so that you never have to believe that Jesus thinks X or Y. Now this is true all the way back to Christ's day, to John's day. And Christ takes the audience and says, okay, let's talk about John. John's disciples were just here. He's just said, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. But he's going to lead them back to this question. What did you go out to see? You went out to see, was it a nature moment? I mean, something as simple as just a reed shaken by the wind? Just out to be kind of a tourist? Did you go out to the wilderness to see famous people, powerful people? No, they don't hang out out there. It wasn't nature. It wasn't power. Was it a prophet? And his answer to that question was yes. Now he has marched his hearers through these categories of what did you go to say? Was it this? No. Was it that? No. Was it this? Not even quite that, but more than that. And he has their ear and he's going to tell them, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is something you already acknowledge that you went to hear, but you went to hear something that was more than you even think. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way before thee. It's a quote from Malachi, there on the left-hand side. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That is the passage. Christ is referring to. That is what John was doing. A very important moment is being set in front of his hearers here. He has warned them, he has warned them, them all, to watch if they take offense at Christ. And he is going to lead them to a position about Christ that is makes an ultimate demand on you by looking at John first. Would you? John, he's a good segue. Let's take that. Let's look at John. What did you, what are you about with John? It wasn't just for a walk. It wasn't because all the right people were doing it. It's because he was a prophet. Oh, let me tell you, now that you agree he was a prophet, he was greater than a prophet. He was the prophet who was prophesying the Messiah. Preparing the way before the Messiah. And not only that, not only was he the prophet who was preparing the way of the Messiah, but he was the greatest guy ever. 
Verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. There you go. In case you were wondering who John the Baptist was, the greatest guy ever. Jesus Christ says that John the Baptist, no one who worked this out, he has taken his crowd from going, yeah, we, we, do, we were listening to John. Who is this John? The greatest prophet. And not only that, the greatest guy. And look at this hidden remark. Which, uh, it's a confusing remark. That even my footnotes in my Bible are confused over it. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now a lot of people look at that and say, John was the last of the Old Testament, Old Covenant prophets. And so that the the person least in the kingdom of God, least in the new covenant, is greater than the old covenant greatest saint. Christ said he's the greatest man ever, but the meanest, nearest, lowest level of Christian is better than he. That's what a lot of people take it to mean that. I, I don't, I don't mind that view, but I, I don't think Jesus is that. Because the question is, what does it take to be the least in the kingdom? This is one of the places where that this passage showed up this week. We were at uh, Wine, Wisdom, and Song, and we um, one of a verse came up on the law about uh, anyone who. Um, changes the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's how you become least in the kingdom of heaven, is lessen the commandments of God and teach men so. But what's interesting is Jesus lessened the commandments and taught men so. Mark 7, and thus he declared all foods clean. The law said they weren't all clean. He said they're all clean. Christ becomes the least in the kingdom. That's why I think what, he's hiding himself kind of on the surface right there in front of people saying, you know, John is, boy, he wasn't, it wasn't a tour. It wasn't for power. It was for prophecy and greater than prophecy. He was prophesying to Christ and he was the greatest man ever born except for he who is the least in the kingdom. Which I think is Christ. You can think the other, right? right? I merely point that out as a side. But whatever the case, even if you hold the other view, he is going to carry you along to a place where you're staring at who these people are. John first, and then Christ. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. John had sent these guys, he was in prison under Herod. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Okay. My gosh, the, 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 the resume building of John the Baptist is considerable here in chapter 11 of Matthew. 
He's, in some, he's somebody important. More than a, pro- a prophet? No, no, more than a prophet. He's the prophet that is going to walk in the way before the Christ, making ready the way of the Lord. Prophesied in Malachi. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. They prophesied until John the Baptist. Oh yeah, and he's the greatest guy ever born. He's the greatest guy ever born. Oh yeah, left something out. He's Elijah too. And Superman. Well, they were expecting Elijah to come. That's also in Malachi. He's quoted Malachi 3. In Malachi 4 it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. This is, remember, this is just about the guy that's preceding the Christ. It's amazing in Christian circles, I'm not talking about non-Christian circles, religious circles, how free people are to think they can disagree or be bothered by something the scriptures say. Those who are in the scriptures, essentially writing and being written about in the scriptures, are coming at you like a freight train. Not only are they saying things you don't like to hear, but they're saying, and you're nothing. Compared to me, compared to John the Baptist, who are you? All of us guys here are born of women, from what I remember. And none of us are as great as John. Unless you take that other view, that anybody in the kingdom is, no matter how much of a collapse of a Christian you are, you're greater than John. I don't know if that's the case, but uh, people don't always have ears to hear. Verse 15 says, he who has ears, let him hear. This Elijah business, did you ever look at that? Description of John the Baptist, I've mentioned this before in church. The description of John the Baptist, what he wore. You go back to Kings and you read this guy, this servant runs up to uh, Ahab and says, uh, he was wearing this, this, and the other, and describes exactly the same thing that John's wearing. And Ahab says, it is Elijah the Tishbite. That's how you recognize Elijah the Tishbite. Same clothes, hair cloth, shirt, leather girdle. So whether or not you believe he's a reincarnation of Elijah or somehow, like the angel told Zechariah, his father, he shall come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Whether you think that's just kind of, he had the same kind of commitment, verve, anointing, whatever you want to, anything but reincarnation. Whatever you think, dang important. Really important. Greatest guy ever. And if you wanted to pick out the most prophet with the most oomph of the Old Testament, I mean, you're going you're to have some also rams. You're going to have Isaiah. You're going to have Elisha, even, because he had double the spirit of Elijah. So you could give some Elisha some props, but Elijah's up there. He's, he's doing stuff. He didn't prophesy things either, really. He just did stuff. 
called fire down from heaven. John didn't prophesy either. But if you have ears to hear, what could possibly get in the way? What could stop us? Because really, being offended at what the scriptures say, being bothered by what it says, comes from someplace. You're not the source of all things righteous. But we sort of feel that way when we're looking at something in the scriptures that, that bothers us. It's almost like we are more righteous than Jesus. You can read through the four Gospels. Do it sometime this week. Read through the four Gospels and sort of tick off the verses that kind of bug you. You don't like what he said there. I don't like what he said there. I don't like what he said there. Just think for that for a moment. You, are, you have a vantage point that says, I am making a moral judgment about Jesus Christ. Or a moral judgment about John the Baptist. Because we are very similar to what Jesus is dealing with in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. That's what this generation is like. Because not only does John the Baptist have a message, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? This is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's John's message. When you are offended by the prophets of God, when you are offended by the Christ, when things they say bother you, it is because other prophets have said otherwise. The world has piped a tune and wants you to dance. The world has pointed out wickednesses and wants you to mourn. You're supposed to align your moral frame with the world. Already in your minds, right now, you are thinking of a lot of examples of where the world says, oh, this is just wrong. And the Christians, hiking up their skirts because they're little sissies, hiking up their skirts, go running over to the world and saying, oh yes, we'll agree with you that this is wrong. We will dance this tune. We will mourn over this to prove that we're not offended at what you, the world, says. And if Jesus or John or any of the apostles says anything, years ago, this is back when we were at the cabin, we had a guest, a friend of mine, of Catholic background, and I was preaching something out of the epistles, and not on something that was dis disturbing or anything like that, but she came up to me afterwards and said, uh, you know, Paul, he says a lot of things that are just unacceptable. Well, she was a friend of mine. She liked me. It wasn't like she was bothered at me. But she wanted me to know that she didn't approve of St. Paul. 
no matter what he said. Probably the stuff he has to say about women. I'm guessing they are, because I didn't ask. I said, you know, used your name, so-and-so. First I have you over here, then I have the Apostle Paul. Then I have you, and I have the Apostle Paul. Who are you? You're nobody. Compared to the Apostle Paul, I'm going to stand over here with the Apostle Paul, for heaven's sake. When it comes to moral judgments, some woman coming up to me in a log cabin in North Idaho telling me she doesn't approve of the Apostle. What kind of conceit? Well, the conceit is the world is piping us a tune. They expect us to dance. The world is mourning for something and they expect us to join in. And they don't like it. And this is how he applies it. He is, he is all the way at the beginning, he said, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. And then he starts talking about John. And now he comes, he brings the two together. For John came, verse 18, neither eating nor drinking. And they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, behold, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The world looks at John and Christ and says, there's nothing you can do. Any stick is good enough to beat a Christian with. Okay? Any, it's an it's a obvious behavior. Until we submit to the world, until we say, whatever the generation says, Whatever is current in thought, why in the world is the Christian church even talking about our relationships with the LGBT community? Why? We love them because they're sinners? Certainly. Why should I have a policy? Because the world told me to. The world says I must that you've got to show your understanding. We piped a tune, you better dance. Now, in another decade, I might be, there might be a state guy sitting in the back, and if I say something like that, like I said it in Canada today, I would be arrested. Because they're serious about their profits. They're serious about what tune they want you to dance to. Because they're protecting their guilt. They're standing guilty before the God of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ has no part of it. He is a God of righteousness. And they don't want to hear that. So when you represent it, they would like to have you be the kind of person who joins right in and apologizes for any Christians who say otherwise. Now, I know that Christians have said many true things in unkind ways. We're not defending sin on the Christian's part either. We've got to decry the sin of their hatred or their lack of love as well. But those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It says in the scripture, if you're immoral, I'm sorry. That's why Jesus died. 
We don't have a church that defends the wickedness that our Lord died to remove. But it's a really powerful thing, this generation. And they look at you and go, hold it, John's demon-possessed and Jesus Christ is a, you know, he's a rascal. He, he goes to the parties, he wears nice clothes, he drinks, probably smokes cigars. I'm pretty sure. But look at what Jesus says. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The Luke 7 account, I have it right down there below because it's an interesting variation of the statement. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Same story, same passage, same event. So he might have said both in sequence. Wisdom is justified by her deeds and she is justified by all of her children. Now what do we, what do we have here? What do we have here? Not only... Do John and Jesus Christ stand, you know, uh, in an aggressive posture against what the world wants you to say? Okay, you noted that. Hey, we're piping to you. How come you're not singing? How come you're not doing what we want you to do? But they're not doing what each other's doing either. And notice that? John came neither eating nor drinking. Jesus came eating and drinking. I not only note they are not like the world, I note they are not like each other. That's the point. Wisdom is resting on a different kind of piety. We don't look at the world and go, oh, the world, uh, sinfulness, worldliness, yes, uh, toleration of uh, the ungodly. Yes, we're not like that. We run over here into our churches and become knickers in a twist. Everybody, be, everybody better be agreeing about how we're going to live. Skirts had better go down below the knee. And if you drink, if you do this, that, and the other, they're trying to say, we're not like the world, but we're all the same. All the same not being like the world. You know, oddly enough, that is defined in the writings of Paul as being like the world. Why do you submit to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Those are human precepts, human doctrines. They're worldly. Now there's the worldliness that defends wickedness and there's the worldliness that defends a faux righteousness. A pattern of behavior that we could all force each other to do. I always appreciate Mark shows up to church with a tie. It's net, uh, let me check. It's the only tie here this morning. <laughs> it has been the only tie in church probably for years now. I'm grateful. And of course, the loveless girls always in some sort of youthful fashion, let alone Addison and Mari, wherever they're hanging out. A variety. Well, we're, not, we're not made righteous because we've had variety. Not, variety is the message of Jesus Christ. But we have to stare at the fact that these two guys 
We're not like each other. And then Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. By all of her children. We're moved by something else. We're not moved by the authorities of this world, the lords that tell us to live out patterns of life a certain way. So you have to ask, where does the wisdom of God rest if it doesn't rest in doing the same thing the same way? There's no expectation that John lived like Christ. You've heard me say before that something I learned from my father. He pointed this section out and always said, and now look at what John said about the Christ. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And what Christ said about John, no man born of woman is greater than John. And they didn't, one didn't even wear pants. Okay? He had a ministry in which pants were optional. He ate really disgusting food. You can believe, ladies, he smelled. You say, well, I believe when he was being a Baptist, it was kind of like a bath. Maybe. But he was the kind of person you grab your children and move to the other side of the street when you see him coming. You know, you know you're guilty because he's one of the homeless. And not because we're advocating activity for the homeless, because that's just one of the tunes being piped for you. That's what the world's into. We're going to stop the sex trade. Hey! We're going to help the poor. Hey! Whatever the world tells you is good, whatever the world tells you is bad, they might be right some of the time, but they're not God. What are the principles you are living by? We don't accept John or reject John because he's funny looking. Wears funny clothes, eats funny food. We don't accept or reject him. But we see some other wisdom going on in him, some other purpose of God. You need to know what the purpose of God is. What is God trying to do in wisdom? You're, 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 you're cast adrift at the end of this passage. You're going to be justified by all of her children. And that means it can include a very well-dressed, drinking, party-attending guy and a very poorly-dressed, strange-living ascetic as the two greatest people to walk the planet in history. And they had a great relationship. And they built their ministries together. One, and as John says, I must decrease that he may increase. Now, usually at a point like this, any pastor worth his salt will tell you directly what is the point. What is the wisdom of God that allows this standing free of the world and not having to be just like each other in our, you might say, personal practice of uh, religious deed? 
But I decided not to do that. Not because, many of you know it. I would hope all of you would want to know it. But one of the points of this passage is, He who has ears, let him hear. There is a task that when we want to know, we'd rather not be the kind of Christian that is, is so anti the world that we're trying to march lockstep with each other against it, or so pro the world that you're being just bits of God help us. Trying to please the world so that the world won't be offended by Jesus Christ. We've just decided to follow him in this wisdom and you want to know what that wisdom is, just at the end of this sermon today, anyway, the encouragement is, well, better go find out. Wherever you're going to go to find it, go find it. Whoever you're going to go talk to, go talk to them. Whatever passage you're going to go read, enjoy it. But you need to go look. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we are grateful for your son and for John who preceded him who were children of your wisdom, who bore fruit that was the same. But Lord, we want to know what that same fruit is. What do you want of us in following them, finding the grace you have in your Son? What is it building in us? We want to be one of the children of wisdom joined to these two men. Lord, we know the temptation of the world to try to leverage their power of righteousness over your church and your church, like a bunch of idiots, labors to be accepted. Or it manages to be worldly and other sort of fake piety ways, Lord, we'd ask that we'd be the kind of body who just believes your son and can smile and quote your son when called upon. Thank you for all of that ministry, and thank you for this week. We're looking forward to it. Bless us each in your son's name. Amen.